Hi, I'm Malak Fuad, and welcome to What I Did Next from ANT Media. We're currently on our season break and we'll be back with new episodes in March. In the meantime, I wanted to share my conversation with journalist and author Kim Rattas. We talk about her work with the BBC and her books, especially the bestseller Black Wave, which I can't recommend enough as a way to truly understand our region. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, X, or on LinkedIn for updates. And you can also find longer video clips from my interviews on YouTube. Here's my chat with Kim. So I'd like to start off with who would be your ideal dinner party guests? If you could pick between five and six people, who would you have? So I would really like to invite my maternal grandmother, who was Dutch, who is, uh, or was, because she passed away in the 90s, was a really sort of jovial, fun woman, as I knew her as a grandmother. I think she was very different when my mother was growing up. But she had a sort of um, funky side to her. She was funny. And I just loved going to visit her because I grew up in the war in, in Lebanon and going to visit my Oma in, in Amsterdam was just this little piece of paradise. And my grandmother, who didn't speak English, loved to listen to music and she loved to listen to Elton John. And in particular, she loved the song Nikita. And so I thought we should really invite Elton John to this. Uh, <laughs> I love that. I love his music too. I have very uh, pop style music, uh, music, you know, taste. So Elton John is right up my alley, you know, Phil Collins, Coldplay. Um, and I think Elton John's had an incredible life as well. And I love these lives that sort of span decades that saw real change. I mean, you know, my, my grandmother must have been born, well, she, she was born before World War I. She saw these two wars. She lived the, the entre-deux-guerres. She, she saw life transform incredibly with the advent of television and telephone and radio um, during her lifetime. She, her daughter moved to Lebanon to marry, uh, you know, a dark stranger, you know, my, my dad. <laughs> uh, and she'd visited Lebanon a few times during the pre-war era and once after the civil war ended in Lebanon. So she, she had an incredible life and Elton John as well. He's overcome a lot of challenges. He's overcome a lot of challenges as well. Then I'd really love to invite my all-time favorite musician and that's Bruce Springsteen. Now I don't know how Bruce Springsteen and Elton John would get along but I think that my my grandma could you know could make that happen. Amazing. The other person who could make this all come together is Hillary Clinton. Another one of my favorite people. I know she gets criticized and she gets vilified and you know, all this crazy stuff gets written about her, but she is also an incredible personality. Yeah, she's an amazing, and you got to know her very well, didn't you? Exactly. Yeah. I got to know her really well uh, as a BBC State Department correspondent, traveling around the world with her for four years. I see her very much as a public servant. She's a politician, of course. No one is in it only to be a public servant, but she is very much a dedicated public servant. And I think that the way she handled her loss 
to Donald Trump in 2016 was incredibly courageous and, and elegant. I think that uh, she and Elton John, I, I think they know each other and get along. I think she would have a great time with, with, uh, with Bruce Springsteen as well. They know each other she, too. She also looks like someone who knows how to party actually. Yeah, she knows how to party. Yeah. She's, she's great conversation. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. She and my grandmother, they'd have a great time. So this is my fantasy dinner party. But it sounds like um, I'm a big admirer of Hillary Clinton as well. And I think she's gotten a very bad rap over the years. Um, but when you look at the breadth of her career, uh, and I, for me, one of the, the standout moments was when she was first lady and she went to Beijing and gave that speech for the women's, um, the UN Women's Conference. That was really courageous at the time. And it was very unusual for a first lady to take such a stand. A lot of the criticism that she has faced is because she breaks the stereotypes. She goes against what society expects. Whether we like it or not, you know, American society is still very sexist. I think also partly because it's, she was a pioneer, and I think any pioneer uh, faces a lot of backlash. When you look at, for example, uh, Jill Biden now, no one batted an eyelid when she said, I'm going to carry on working. It was just assumed and accepted. Just, And it's partly Hillary paving the way, for sure. Okay. Well, that's a great list, Kim. I I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that party. That sounds really cool. Let's quickly uh, discuss your um, your favorite film, your favorite book, and your favorite piece of music. So my favorite song, for no reason really other than it is, of course, a great song, and it's a great singer and performer. But it, it has no special meaning to me. It's just that I keep humming it. I hum it all year long, and it's Summertime by Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, it's gorgeous. I just, it comes to me all the time. You know how some songs get stuck in your head? Yeah, it's a happy song. It's a happy song. Yeah. It's a happy song. So one of my favorite films is about my profession and it's called Up Close and Personal. I know. With um, Robert Redford. Yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer. It's a lovely film. Very sweet. I, I just, you know, I, I always wanted to be a journalist and I, uh, you know, I, I saw that film soon after it came out. And I think I was already working as a journalist and it just inspired me with its passion, with its love story. I mean, I'd love to have a love story like that, although it has a very tragic ending. But the sort of this partnership, uh, you know, two people together, independent, but working side by side, yeah. but traveling separately when needed in pursuit of the story and then being there for each other when it really matters. Um, and there's just, an idealism you know, to it, right? There's an idealism to it. Yeah, there's an idealism to it. It's it's really about journalism that makes a difference, that changes things. So I love that film, and I've watched it several times. And then for my favorite book, um, there are very few books that I pick up to read again. Uh, I do reread a lot of Agatha Christie's, just because I always forget what the plot is about yeah. and so I think it's pure escapism that. right it's complete escapism it's complete escapism I read so many of them during the pandemic when I was younger there was one book that uh, I reread several times and it was um The Plague by Albert Camus La Peste did you read it in French or in English in French I I'm actually French educated right. I grew up uh, I went to a French school in Lebanon I wanted to reread it during the pandemic but in the end I couldn't get myself to do it 
But another book that I've read and reread many times is, um, and I have no idea why it's called that. It's called Climat by André Mauroy. So you can tell that, you know, I grew up reading a lot of French. And Climat, which means climate, plural, climates, which doesn't work, um, is actually about a love story between a man and a woman and um, how she's quite distant and he can't quite ever reach her. Um, and then she, um, I can't remember actually now because it has been a while since I reread it. She either leaves him or she passes away. And then his next relationship, he does to his new partner what has been done unto him by the previous person. And I think that's often the sort of the cycle of life and relationships that we have to deal with, whether in love or in friendships. And it's beautifully written. It's quite sad, um, but it made me think a lot about attachment and love and and how we we go from pattern to pattern and how do you break these patterns. Very interesting. I also find that um, I read, I used to read a lot of French literature and I I also contemplated reading La Peste in the pandemic and I thought twice about it and I, I decided not to as well. I thought it would be too grim. Yeah. But what I love about French literature is that it's, there's a subtlety to, to, to the, to the, the writing and and you you have to read between the lines in a way that in English you don't um and so there's a lot of uh engagement by the reader I find with French literature that you just don't get from from English yeah absolutely and I, I still love to read in French and I read I mean this is probably blasphemy but I read Agatha Christie translated into French really <laughs> um, and I read any author that is translated, I read them in yeah. French, Japanese authors. You know, Haruki Murakami is one of my favorite authors. And so I always read him in, um, in and, French. And is French your first language? Do you feel the most comfortable in French? Well, after 20 odd years of career in English, I'm obviously more comfortable speaking and writing and um, lecturing in, in English. But there are still days and times when I'm writing something, I'm like, gosh, this French expression is really perfect. How do I say this in English? And I can get stuck for a while trying yeah. to figure out the English way of saying something that I've got perfectly written in my head in French. The, um, the traumas of being multilingual, I guess, you know, it, it, is, it is difficult. Not a trauma, obviously, but, yeah, but it's a frustration. It a trauma at all. It's an absolute richness and it does give my English writing a distinctive something that sets my use of vocabulary and my sentence structure apart. Not in a French translated into English way, but if in a sort of English enriched by a different layer of linguistics. Yeah, because I think your, your thought process is different, right? You're not thinking necessarily in the way that you would if you were English educated. I, I think it's much more linear, the English way of thinking, whereas French is a lot more sort of um, meandering. Yes, I am a meanderer, if that's a word. But, but I think that's, I, I mean, I think that's very enriching when you're, at least as a reader of, of your work, it's a very enriching experience. So yeah, it's, I, I meander, but there's always a reason why. Yeah. I always get to the point and then the reader goes, aha, okay, now I get it. <laughs> You're half Dutch, half Lebanese. Your mother's family is Dutch and your father is Lebanese. And you were born in Lebanon, is that correct? Yeah. And you, you spent all your childhood in Lebanon. 
I want to know what growing up in the Civil War was like, because going to school in that environment, um, you know, every, I suppose every day waking up, not sure what's going on. I, I'd like to get your sense of what that was like for you as a child. And I know that that informed your your journalism career. You know, it's very hard to explain to someone who's never lived through war what it's actually like on a day-to-day -day basis, because it's very hard to convey the uncertainty and it's very hard to convey the fear. But I'll say two things. One is that after the experience of the globe living through the pandemic, it's become a little bit more accessible for others to understand what it's like to live without knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. You know, there's so many people who ask me, why did you stay there? Why did your parents not leave the country? Why did they not leave Lebanon? Why did they not leave that neighborhood? It's because you keep thinking, oh, it's going to end soon. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, oh, two weeks. Well, maybe a month, six months. Well, now we're talking 2022. And so you're in the middle of this war, and you don't know when it's going to end. And in the first year, within about six months, there was a ceasefire. And everybody thought, oh, we can, we can stay. Um, and then there was another outbreak. And they're like, well, it can't get worse than last time. And so before you know it, a year and a half of the pandemic have gone by. And before you know it, two, three, four, five years of the war have gone by. I was young. I didn't understand what it was all about. I just knew that I felt the injustice of it. And I felt that I wanted the world to better understand what was going on in my country. And I thought that if they did, then, you know, they might help put an end to it. And that's why I also decided to become a journalist because I thought, okay, this is my role. I have to explain what is really going on so that perhaps world leaders can bring this to an end. Of course, you know, you know, the war ended when I was 13 years old, but I was still on my mission to become a journalist and I pursued that. Yeah. And I have to say that the war in Lebanon was not like what we're seeing in Syria, where it's utter, complete devastation and desolation, you know, a la World War II, Dresden style, complete, utter flattened. destruction. Yeah. Flattened. It was pretty bad. I mean, we are our own apartment block was, you know, was shelled several times and we had to leave and shelter and you know, we had a lot of near misses. But the, at the end of the day, um, I, I don't moan and feel miserable because I grew up in a war. I try to use it as an empowerment mechanism. I am grateful for who I am today. The war made me who I am. Of course. It would have been very different, Malak, if we'd lost someone in our family to this war. Of course. If we'd had him, if we'd had someone injured. So we survived by a miracle, but I know that the trauma of war is still within us. And there are moments where it suddenly comes back. There are moments where unexpectedly I start having nightmares about it again. And, and unfortunately in Lebanon, it, it is still part of our present. We're still living with the, um, the remnants of this war, which is what is keeping this country hostage. 
And possibly the, the last August's explosion was a big trigger for a lot of people who had lived through it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people who'd never left decided they wanted to leave. A lot of people who'd left and come back decided they couldn't take this anymore. I mean, Lebanon keeps breaking your heart. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm among the privileged ones in this country because thanks to my mom, I have a second passport. I could get on a plane anytime I want. Um, I have an international career. So I still feel empowered. I, I mean, you're, you're keeping Lebanon as much as you can in the forefront of people's, uh, you know, knowledge. Yes, and, but I write about more than Lebanon. But so what I mean is that it, feel, it makes me feel that I'm not just a powerless victim. I'm fascinated by the fact that you, from the age of 13, had already decided on your path in life, career-wise. 13 is so young that, that we all have these dreams when we're young, but they tend to change and whatever. But you, you did it. I mean, from 13, you went with it. Well, first, I wanted to be a nun. So, <laughs> so that didn't work out. That didn't work. <laughs> you know, kids have these spiritual periods that yeah. they go through. And yeah. I don't know why I wanted to be a nun. Um, I, I, I was over that very quickly. <laughs> then I wanted to be a detective. Right. But, you know, growing, growing up during the war brings a certain maturity, a very early maturity to, to children. Yeah. So I came to the, the, um, the decision to be a journalist at, at the age of 13 in a very sort of methodical way. I sat down and wrote an essay to myself about what were the things that I wanted to do, that I liked to do. And one of them was, you know, socializing and traveling and being around people and hearing people's stories. So I um, thought, you know, I could go into, I could start a hotel, but I didn't like the idea of being bound to one place. Uh, and I thought, okay, I really like to take photographs and pictures and travel so I could be a photographer, but I also really like the writing. So, you know, what combines all these things? Uh, and I, I was also very disappointed in 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 how we were pleased we were relieved of course that the war had ended in lebanon in 1990 but we were also living under occupation syrian occupation which is one of the chapters of lebanon's contemporary history that is very much untold and i thought it was a terrible injustice that war should end with an occupation and i wanted to tell that story and so combining sort of my my nascent geopolitical awareness at the age of 13, I don't know how much geopolitical awareness you actually have, but the sense of injustice within me with my desire to travel and tell stories and photograph and write and be around people and hear people's stories, I sort of said, oh, okay, well, I guess I should be a journalist. Yeah, so amazing. So conclusion. Yeah. And then, uh, so tell me a little bit about, uh, you spent a few years at the Daily Star. You were writing, covering uh, Lebanese uh, politics. And then from there, you moved on to... You were, became a stringer, right, for the BBC at first? That's correct. So I actually was dreaming of leaving Lebanon because I was the youngest of three and my two sisters had already left the country during the war to study abroad. My parents had decided to keep me here. And I was so upset and so angry and so disappointed and my parents also really wanted me to uh, go to French university, uh, Université Saint-Joseph in Beirut and study business. 
to help take over my father's business. And I rebelled against that as well. And eventually, my, my parents gave in and allowed me to go to the American University of Beirut. And I studied political science. But that seems to me like a, the first major pivot, if you like. You could have gone on a completely different path. But you stood your ground and you said, no, I want this. So, so, so it was a pivot in two ways. A, I could have given in and, you know, I'd be running my father's business today, which funnily enough, 20 years later, I kind of am helping to do anyway. Yeah. Um, what's meant to be is, is, is meant to be. I could have also rebelled and, you know, gotten on a plane on my own somehow and ended up in New York and somehow found a way into Columbia journalism school or something. And it would have given me a very different career. It would have given me a very different career. And I'll never forget one of my best friends. He said, look, you never know. I mean, there might be good in here for you because you'll learn to know, you'll get to know the country and you'll be at university with people who you will eventually one day cover as politicians and, or others, etc." And indeed it was, he was, he was right yeah. because staying in Lebanon, and starting to work as a freelancer at the Daily Star or a part-timer, and then becoming a stringer for and a fixer, which means you know you help foreign reporters who come to Lebanon and you translate for them and you set up interviews for them. You know, I did that for some of the greats of American journalism from the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, which led me to start stringing for the BBC, which led me to start stringing for the Financial Times, you know, and I was unique because I spoke perfect English, I spoke good Arabic, I could translate, I could understand the local language, I didn't need my own translator, I could translate for others, I could get into countries like Syria with my Lebanese passport when no one could get, could get in there, I could get into Iraq easily when it was still under Saddam Hussein, so it kind of made, uh, it made my career. I want to ask you, Kim, at this point, what, at that time, were you conscious of the fact that these were advantages or is it only with hindsight 20 years later that you look back and say, it was very serendipitous that I didn't travel for my studies? I think I realized quite quickly that I was at the right place at the right time. And with a lot of hard work, I, I made it work for me. I, you know, at one point I was writing for a Dutch newspaper, the Financial Times, and I was stringing for the BBC. And then there were things that didn't work out. At the time, I had a boyfriend who was Dutch and we wanted to live in Amman together. And I applied for a job with, with the BBC in Amman, but they didn't get it. And I cried, you know, you know, a lot. But but in the end, it wasn't meant to be. Yeah. It just wasn't meant to be. Yeah. And Beirut was meant to be for me. And soon after... Uh, you know, it's a terrible thing about journalism because you, I, I don't know how to put it in a sort of diplomatic way, but you kind of, you, you, you benefit from misfortune of countries and people. And it's a terrible way of putting it, but for lack of a better, yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. In 2005, Rafiq Hariri was assassinated. And that was my big break on television with the BBC. And that's when the BBC decided they should hire me and not let someone else um, get to me first. And my boyfriend at the time moved to, to Lebanon and we lived together here for a few years. And I, I, I knew that I was right where I needed to be. And, and it was then 2006 happened. And 2006 is of course the war between Israel and Hezbollah, which was devastating for Lebanon. And in a sort of strange 
way, I felt that I had come full circle because I was reporting on a war in Lebanon and being able to tell the world what it was really about, putting forward the, the story of the people of this country for an international audience. And I felt strangely in the middle of a war, I felt at peace and I felt empowered because I was no longer just on the receiving end of the shelling as a child. And if, if I may just end that answer with something that really touched me a few months later, I was in New York or a year later, I was in New York and I was in a bookstore and somebody came up to me and it was a family with two kids. And they said, are you Kim Gattas? Are you Kim Gattas from the BBC? And I said, yes. And I was a little bit sort of frightened. I, I, it had never happened to me before that somebody would come up to me in, in the middle of a street or a store. And they said, you know, we're from Ireland and we watched you on the television every day for 34 days during the war in Lebanon. And we waited for your reporting every morning to know what had happened in your country and thank you for everything you did. And I just thought, okay, even if they're the only people who watched me every morning, I've done my job. Interesting that it's an Irish family who probably yes, experienced very something very similar. Yeah. But what I also want to want to pick up on is something that's really important, which is that um, obviously a lot of the big uh, international media channels uh, always send reporters uh, to the scene um, who are foreign, who don't know the area, who rely on the local talent, as you had been as a junior stringer and fixer. Um, but they, BBC obviously clearly recognized that having you front and center um, added a dimension to the reporting that, that they would never have gotten if someone had just flown in for a couple of weeks and flown out again. To the credit of my colleagues at the BBC, a lot of them are, you know, based in the region, are experts, have covered the region for a long time. So they're not just sort of flying in from London for two weeks, you know, once, once in a blue moon. But... It is true that I bring a different layer, a different understanding, a different kind of empathy. And I would like to think that I helped also my colleagues understand certain things differently or, or better. Yeah. I, I could not cover the war on my own, of course. Of course. They, the BBC did send a lot of people. And if you're sitting in, in Cairo or in Riyadh or in Beirut, you're watching BBC World and you think that's that's the BBC, but there's the BBC World Service Radio and then there's the domestic facing, UK facing outlets of the BBC and all these channels, you know, that's hundreds of hours per hour of broadcasting that has to be filled. And so there were many, many of us uh, during that conflict and it was also a 34 day long war. So, you know, I stayed throughout, but not everybody stayed throughout. And so people were coming in and out. But yes, they sent a lot of people and it was a great teamwork and we won an Emmy for- I was actually going to ask you, Kim, I see it behind you. Yes, it is behind me. You know, you're absolutely right that uh, it's, it's worth pointing out that, you know, international news organizations do, you know, fly in correspondents who sometimes don't know everything they should know about a region. And I, and I think that the concept of foreign correspondent is a little bit outdated and needs to be revisited. And I think it's happening de facto with a lot of local reporters 
who are now writing for international news organizations and being hired by them with their bylines in the paper. And I think that's a great development. I think that's a great point. And I also think that the entire industry is going to be completely different in the next five years with the ad with the social media reach. You know, everyone's a reporter now. I don't know exactly how that's going to unfold. You still need to have, you know, real trained reporters on the ground. And it's true that sometimes when you're from the country, you don't have what it takes to step back and look at the big picture because you're so involved emotionally and so on. But, you know, I mean, Americans write about their own country, right? Yeah, to write about their own country. So why wouldn't a Lebanese be able to write about their own country for a British newspaper or an American newspaper? So I think we need to rethink, rethink that. We'll continue our conversation with Kim right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hela Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, you can find out more about the screenwriting process with acclaimed filmmaker Mo Hevzi, or about the luxury design industry with Monez and Ayad Raouf, the sisters behind Ukhtin. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fouad, and you're listening to What I Did Next from ANT Media. And this is our conversation with Kim Rattas. Before the break, Kim was telling me about her work with the BBC in Lebanon, after which she moved to Washington, where she worked for nearly 10 years. Before we discuss the um, the work itself, how did it feel for you to, to be living away from Lebanon? You'd never lived away from Lebanon and to go to Washington. And it's a very different lifestyle, very different um, pace of life, very different pace of career even. So it was definitely pivot point. It was a sort of unexpected turning point in my life because I had actually applied for a job with the BBC in Tehran. Oh, really? <laughs> That's where I wanted to go next after Beirut. Interesting. And I didn't get it. And I was again devastated. And as a compensation, the BBC decided to uh, give me the opportunity to go to New York for three months. So that was a great relief. You know, I was still getting over the whole roller coaster of 2005-2006 in Lebanon with a wave of assassinations and violence and the war, etc. So it was great to leave Lebanon. New York wasn't quite my kind of story because, unfortunately, I don't do 
um, like fun stories. I don't do culture. I don't, I mean, I do some, but you know, I don't do finance. So it was a little bit hard to find my footing, but I was just enjoying it as much as I could. And I did great during three months. And the BBC realized that I had a lot to offer beyond Lebanon. And I realized that I had to lock a lot to offer beyond the Middle East as well. Did that surprise you? It didn't surprise me, but it, it, it sort of opened my eyes to other possibilities that I hadn't contemplated yet. And America is not my country, so I just wasn't quite sure how I could make a difference yeah. covering America. But when the State Department job came up in the U.S. that year, and it made total sense because I'd grown up on the receiving end of American foreign policy all my life, and now I could go cover that policy being made. And I'll never forget one of the BBC bosses who was on the board for the interview for the Tehran job. She was the deciding vote against me getting the job. And when I had applied for the State Department job, I was in London for, for the interviews and she pulled me aside and she said, look, I, I want to tell you something. You know, I'm very sorry you didn't get the Tehran job because, you know, I didn't want to send a woman into what was going to possibly be a war zone because things were very tense at the time and there was talk of a war. And I thought, are you kidding me? I grew up in a war. I covered war. Why would you make that decision for me? I told her, I said, oh, don't worry, you know, one door closes and another one opens. And I think I'm on my way to Washington, which is exactly where I'm meant to be right now. Yeah. And you asked me whether, you know, it was a change of pace and how I adapted. You know, going to the U.S. in many ways felt like going home. I felt very comfortable in the U.S. My sister had studied in the U.S. I'd visited many times. I spoke English. And I did, I think I did, I did well. I had, I had a great time. And I made a difference as well there because I, I came to it in a way that no other BBC State Department correspondent had come to this job before. You know, they'd all been British before me. And I came with a, you know... You know, I'm half Western because I'm half Dutch, but I came to it with a sort of a non-Western perspective, asking questions that no one had asked before. And that's why I ended up writing my book, The Secretary, because I found in my travels with the U.S., with, with the U.S. Secretary of State around the world, when we went to Pakistan or we went to, you know, Cairo or Tunisia or Baghdad or, uh, you know, Kenya, etc., that a lot of people still had the same questions that I'd had as a child. And so I had a better understanding now of why. And I set out to write that book to, to for, for an American audience to better understand what American foreign policy means for others and how their world, how, how their country is viewed in the rest of the world, but also for readers around the world to better understand how American policy is made and what it can do and what it cannot do. Yeah, I read the book and I and what one of the things I uh, um, I was so, it was such a whirlwind of, you know, uh, scheduling and traveling and planes and it was as if you know you had no time to breathe. Um, did you write that while you were uh, a correspondent, or did you write that afterward? I, I started working on this in uh, end of two thousand ten, so two years before Hillary Clinton, so two years into Clinton's yeah. tenure. And it came out at the the month that she left the State Department. It's fascinating because it really gives you a slice of life on the road in this sort of environment. Yeah, an inside look at the foreign policy machine of, of, of America. I want to jump to Black Wave, um, which I know that you wrote 
after you left the BBC, you went back to live in Lebanon. Um, I read somewhere it took you about three years to write. This book for me um, was one of the best books I've read in the last five years, if not more. It describes the, the year 1979 as a turning point in the Middle East. Um, and specifically how the breakdown in the relationship between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia then um, uh, uh, made the, the, the region almost unravel uh, to the situation we're in at the, at the moment uh, and we have been for the last few decades. I want to know, first of all, how you came up with this particular um, idea. How, what made you want to zoom in on the, the Iran-Saudi relationship? And I know that you, you, you begin the book in this, with this question that I think every Arab asks themselves is, what happened to us? And why are we here? What, what happened to our region? So, so I, I want to backtrack a little bit uh, and tell you about how I was supposed to be writing a completely different book. And, you know, if this show is about pivot points and, you know, <laughs> uh, roads less traveled and, and, and turning points that you didn't expect, you know, I was actually focused on writing something totally different about a Lebanese family um, who'd gone through, you know, love, exile, assassination, etc. And I wanted to write their story as the way of telling the story of Lebanon and, and the Levant. But for some, for various reasons, it didn't work out. And watching, you know, the terrible damage that ISIS at the time in 2014 was doing to the region. And it felt unfortunately, somewhat familiar. I know Saudis bristle at the comparison, but, you know, some comparisons are just inevitable with all the caveats that come with the fact that, yes, ISIS is not a government and that, you know, ISIS, if there's one government they would like to bring down, it's, you know, the, the, the House of Saud, you know, I get all that and no comparisons are perfect, but there was something about the rage with which ISIS uh, took over parts of Iraq and Syria, smashed history to pieces, uh, imposed, you know, really radical, puritanical, literalist version of Islam, which is, you know, Hanbali Salafism, which reminded me of parts of, you know, aspects of Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's no escaping that. And it sort of got me thinking about cultural desertification. But then that year, 2014, that Christmas, my sister who lives in Lebanon, my eldest sister who lives in Lebanon, Ingrid, traveled to southern Lebanon with a friend of hers who's from a village near Nabatiyi, which today is a sort of, um, you know, a power base for Hezbollah. And my sister's, my, my friend's sister, rather, really wanted to show my sister around and show her her hometown and where she'd grown up and you know, they were supposed to spend the day and have lunch. But when they got there, um, you know, it's really only when you bring an outsider to your family or to your home or to your village that you see, you know, all the warts in a way. And so this, this friend suddenly realized there was not much to show my sister. There were no cafes. The theaters were closed. There was not much shopping to be done. They couldn't really find a nice place for lunch. So they went to, you know, another town a few miles away. And that got me thinking about the fact that we had been through a previous wave of cultural desertification, except it was not by, you know, radical Sunni Salafists. It was by, you know, revolutionary 
you know, Shiaism exported by Khomeini. And, you know, in writing my first book, uh, The Secretary, I'd already come across a few incidents that were connected to 1979, the siege of the mosque in Mecca, the invasion of Afghanistan, you know, history that I knew, but not in detail. And I started piecing things together and I started wondering whether, you know, ISIS was a reaction, whether Hezbollah was a reaction and who was a reaction to which and where did it start? And, you know, what did it all begin in this year, 1979? And the more I dug, the more I thought, wow, I think I'm onto something. And the more, you know, there was something about the ISIS uh, summer that brought to the fore more and more of this questioning about what happened to us. You know, why are we seeing this happen in Iraq and in Syria, you know, the cradle of civilization? And so bit by bit, I started, you know, piecing things together and doing my research and really testing the thesis that 1979 was, was this turning point. And how did you go about doing your research for that? Because how did you test the thesis? You know, in very different ways, you know, interviews, readings, uh, conversations with others who know more about the region, you know, digging in, in, in libraries to see whether anything had been written about 1979 or in that way. Um, you know, the doubt that comes with writing is, is incessant, is, is never ending. And I, I doubted this book until it came out. It's a fascinating book, Kim, and, and it's a, a really unusual take on the region um, and a different way of thinking of the region. Yeah. What, what has been the reception? I know it's been very, very well received and I know it's a bestseller. How has that changed you? Has it changed you, your life in any way? Or do you consider yourself now, uh, is this a path you're going to go on? You're going to be write more? Are you looking to do that more? I'm waiting for the next pivot point, <laughs> which will, I think, come to me without me even working, not, not without me even working for it, but it will come as a result of this because the hard work that I've done has set other things in motion and in place and, you know, something will appear on my path, which I would probably not have thought of. And, I mean, the way it's changed me is, I'm not sure, I don't know if it's changed me. I, I think it's, it has, um, it's, been, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. It's been very humbling in many ways to see the reception that it's got. It's been fantastic to receive so many emails and messages from around the world, from people who told me I was their confinement companion. You know, really from, from Dublin, from Belfast, from Milan, from Islamabad, from Cairo, from Sao Paulo. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. People from the region who tell me um, that they're so grateful to finally read the book that helps them make sense of it all. People from the US or Europe who say, we never quite understood this region, but now we do. Thank you for writing this. We, have, we had our aha moment. Yeah. It's incredibly humbling that people in Washington you know, inside the administration, inside Congress, inside, you know, the Pentagon are reading the book. Yeah. And I hope it helps shape better policymaking. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be full of myself, but I'm hopeful that it helps shed some light, a different light on this region. That's not why you write the book, but that's always a hope. Of course. And I do hope that it, it helps some people better understand um, the region.
Well, it's a it's a wonderful book. I recommend it highly. I want to just close by by mentioning one thing that you have on your bio in your on your website. You talk about your love of food and cooking and how one of your uh, lifelong goals is to open a restaurant. Is that is that on the cards? Is that something you're you're still uh, dreaming of? No, I think the pandemic killed that, along with thousands of restaurants, if not millions of restaurants around the world. Um, God, the restaurant industry is a hard industry. It's sort of this fantasy, which I don't think I'll ever get to. You know, maybe a cafe, bookshop. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the world will look yeah. like in five sure. years. In the meantime, I love to cook for my friends. I try to do it as often as possible. I take them on travels with Indian cooking, Iranian cooking, French cooking, Thai cooking. You know, I love to experiment and explore. Um, so I think I'll stick to that for now. That's a nice hobby and a, and a good um, way to decompress as well, to do, to cook. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Kim, I want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank you so much for being uh, very open and um, super, super knowledgeable and super interesting with so many different parts to your life. And I thank you very much for sharing it all. Thank you so much for having me, Malak. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for updates on the show. Just search for What I Did Next. I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review in your podcast player. This boosts the show's ratings and helps us reach potential new listeners.